the heck does this really mean? Netflix, at Netflix tweets, to the 53 people who have watched A Christmas Prince every day for the past 18 days, who hurt you? And and then people are like, um, Netflix, why are you watching me? And Netflix responds with, well, we just care about you. We're just worried about you. <laughs> and like Netflix has been outing people's crazy watching habits over Twitter for the last couple of days. Have you seen this, Wes? Yeah, it's bizarre. It's, I like it, though. It is good. It's like it's funny, but then it's also a reminder how these hosted platforms are constantly monitoring everything we do. And even when I like them... It's still a little gentle reminder. Every time you hit that play button, they know you're watching this. Someone is silently judging yeah. you. My it's buddy funny got hit and with creepy it. at the same time. Exactly. Exactly. My buddy got hit with it. They checked in on him. Really? Yeah, he binge watched. Oh, I can't even remember what it was, but nutshell, he binge watched like eight seasons of something within like four days, or so, and they're just like, "Oh, your patterns look different. Are you good?" You know what? I I heard from somebody else. This is not the first wow. time I've heard this story. And the person was legitimately depressed. And they were in a funk and they watched they watched like a whole bunch of uh, shows back to back to back to back. And Netflix support emailed them and asked them if they were okay. Wow. Netflix is kind of a crazy company. That is really crazy. I mean, it's good that somebody cares, right? Even if it's just some anonymous support person at Netflix. It's nice that somebody cares. At the same time... I care time, so much, I'm going to stalk you, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Like, do they have, like, some sort of dashboard where they're like, somebody's having a bad day, like, alert comes up? It's probably a piracy thing. It's probably like a, somebody is downloading a whole bunch of content off our servers, let's flag them. And then they look at it and go, no, it looks legit, they're just depressed. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but that they might lost not their job. Be... All they're doing now is watching Netflix. <laughs> oh, gosh. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 227 for December 12, 2017. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show. Get the hell out of here. That is so fired up about today's episode, it might just strike a little too close to home. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Mr. Wes. Today on the show, we're going to tackle a few big topics. First, we'll bust through some community news, things you need to know about. And uh, I'm not going to lie, the system D debate rages on. Still. This time, it may never die. Your humble hosts are taking a flamethrower to the idiots that won't stop this. Once and for all, we're going to take a flamethrower to this particular discussion. And then, let's get into replacing YouTube. Let's get into replacing Patreon. Let's get into replacing Twitter. That's right, on this week's episode, we're going to attack centralized platforms and services and tell you how it's nearly within your grasp to replace all of these with P2P, decentralized, no single point of failure or control systems. The internet is falling apart. And there's been a couple of things that have happened just this last week that honestly, as a Linux user, get a little like uh, throw up in my throat. You know, like when yeah, you throw yeah. up a little bit you and you got to swallow it down, anymore. you're like, mm, that was horrible. Ugh. That's how these things make me feel. I've been throwing up in my throat all week. <laughs> Okay, well, proverbial, not really. The, the proverbial throw up in my throat, I'll tell you why, and we'll bust through all of this and the solutions that are emerging that are all open source, that are all peer-to-peer, and that are all decentralized. How about that? So it's not quite there yet, but who better than Linux users to push this crap over the edge? Speaking of Linux users, let's bring in our virtual lug time-appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello. Hey, hey. Hey, oh. Hello. 
Hey, hey, oh, everybody. Thank you for joining me. I know everybody's busy as the uh, freaking holidays approach, and uh, I appreciate everybody taking a moment of their busy day to join us in the lug. It's nice. It just it? wouldn't be the same without you. It wouldn't. Uh, the beard's not here this week, I should mention. We're feeling I, lonely. We need you, Mumble Room. He, he sends his regrets, but he's out on assignment, assignment being moving. Yeah. Which, ooh, do not envy that. I would that. much rather be here. You remember Dev 1? Yeah. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. Ubuntu fork, or no, the, I'm sorry, the Debian fork that uh, doesn't have system D. No system D in Dev 1. And we've we've had some things here to there to say about DevWan, but nobody's had something to say about DevWan like the owner of a server hosting company, not inside the U.S. His name is Nico, I think is how you pronounce it. Does I that sound right? So. N I C O. Yep. I'm sorry, Nico, if I'm if I'm mispronouncing your name. Uh, and he takes to the internet this week to defend DevWan and to silence the system D lovers once and for all with his empirical data his hard-learned evidence, and, of course, his links that are indisputable, which would be all the studies that he references in his... I'm, I'm sorry, what? Mm-hmm. He doesn't have any of those things? He doesn't have any any, any, any studies? Mm-hmm. This is all anecdotal evidence? Uh-huh. I've just been informed that my producer says that uh, we're good to go with this story. So uh, here we go. We when, carry right <laughs> on. So uh, I'll I'll dig into some of the most important parts. Uh, This is a defense of DevWan. He he opens up, he says, I understand that some of you may think that uh, DevWan, a fork of Debian, is an infinite waste of resources. The problem is that you're small-minded and you don't understand how the world works. You see, because it's saving the world. It's saving resources. And I'm going to explain to you why. And if you don't understand and disagree, then you're just not obviously a server person. So they tried to build a data center light, you know, like a a thin, compact study version of a data center on Debian and Ubuntu. But you see, there's a fundamental problem with servers that run systemd. They don't boot. They don't boot and they don't reboot. (laughs) And systemd resolved that constantly interferes with core network configurations made it very expensive for them to run Debian or Ubuntu. Their words, not mine. And while they're using flowery words, they say, the reason to use Dev1 is the hard calculated costs. They're a small team, and they simply don't have the time to fix problems caused by SystemD on a daily basis. Did you know that you're having problems with SystemD on a daily basis with the systems you run? Every, Did you know that? Every day. Did you know that? Yeah. I, I, I See, I was, under the, I was under the mistaken impression that all of my systems with SystemD have been running fine now for about a year. <laughs> I'm such an idiot. That might just be you, Chris. I'm an idiot. Uh, their objective is to create a great, easy-to-use platform for virtual machine hosting, not to walk a fucking tightrope. So don't get it wrong, okay? Because they don't want to walk a tightrope. If you want to walk a tightrope, that's a different business. That's somewhere else. Yeah, not in a data That's center. where Debian's at. That's where Ubuntu's at. Not DevOne. On that tightrope. The DevOne community creates infinite economic costs. Sure. But that's not their fault. Creating DevOne is simply a counter-reaction to ensure that Linux remains stable which is of high importance to a lot of people. Because everybody in IT management, everyone who's built a data center, and anyone who's ever managed at a server, is completely aware that if you can run a minority operating system that is tested by a very, very few fraction of the users that doesn't have wide use in production, that's the definition of a production-ready system. If you can have a system that only a couple handful of tens, maybe at most... 15,000 users are using versus a system that's literally deployed by millions of users by the largest enterprise companies in the entire world. You don't want to use that system. 
because their systems don't boot. See, what you want to do is you want to stick with the esoteric fork that's only used by a very small minority of people who aren't likely to bitch in the first place because it's confirmation bias and they don't want to validate confirmation bias. So you got to stick with that system. Yeah, you read it right. DevOn developers are creating stability. Think about it. If not for a few repeating system, system debugs or the insecurity caused by a huge monolithic piece of software running root root privileges, then system do you be okay. See, what we much prefer are tens of thousands of tiny programs that are no longer maintained that diffract our vulnerability landscape across thousands of lines of entry points in code. So you don't want to have one active project being maintained by the most important people in the industry who have their entire revenue model on the line to make sure this thing works. That's the last thing you want. That's the last thing you want. What you want, what you want to make sure you have on your data center servers is something that is no longer maintained, something that is done by thousands of different pieces of software instead of one maintained code base, and something that's simply too large for one, any one individual to fully understand. That's, you got to have something like that when you run into production. And systemd, not that. That's a problem. You see, when you're running servers, you got to make sure... Keep it as diffracted. Keep it as def- just deferred as possible. Really, the key thing there. And then, and then you're getting as close to uh, old Linux as possible, and everybody's happy. There's no problems. It's not too complex. It's nothing like Windows, and it's stable. Remember how much fun we had when we tried out Slackware the other month? It was great. Yeah, old school Linux. With System D, the main advantages to use Linux are obsolete. So, what is the importance of DevOn? It's not only crucial to Linux users, but to everyone running servers, or rockets, or watches, or anything that actually depends on a stable operating system. Support DevOn. Support DevOn. That's, uh, this is, uh, this is the shit that we deal with. And it's so funny because, um, you know, what really, people who care have switched to FreeBSD. Or another BSD, another BSD, like people that really care about System D on their servers. They're just hey, I'm working on Gentoo right here, man. <laughs> well, that's right. We got to talk about that. So you know the thing. That I guess what I'm coming back to here is, um, if you if you see this as they do, then you need to reevaluate why you're in the industry, and you need to think about the fact that you may be a risk to your business. Your personal stubborn views on the way computers should run probably make you a risk. Not because you're even necessarily wrong about System D or the reason it was deployed or the fact that one piece of code base is a singular target versus thousands of scattered applications. You could be right on all of that, but there's a fundamental fact of the network effect, testing, user testing, and enterprise deployment that makes System D inevitable if you want to run Linux in a major installation. And anything that's actually production important in the next few years, if you're not on System D, you're not going to be on Linux. And I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it's that way. But it's time for you to either quit your job or switch to BSD. Not because you're wrong about Systemd. You might be right. You might be right. But it's just for the same reason that I think Manjaro is a chicken shit reason to <laughs> not use Arch. <laughs> It's literally the same thing, right? But see, the whole thing that people like to pretend is great about Manjaro is that theoretically there's millions of users using Manjaro testing and that Manjaro makes Arch right. It, it is, it, it, you could only have that when you have millions, millions of users using your software and all the different esoteric edge cases that find bugs that have un, unprecedented load on the network stack or unprecedented load on the disk I.O. or attackers hit, hitting this thing remotely over, over from Iran 
ran over the internet. Like until you are in those positions with your software, you're not production ready. That's why you have something like ZFS and you have something like ButterFS. There's clear differences in which one's production ready. One has massive enterprise deployment where people are making millions of dollars off a product a year. And one has a few enthusiasts that are trying out and losing data. But it is made of butter. So there's that. It is, it is, it is a common thread that we see. And I totally understand where they're coming from. And, you know, it, it would be great. It would be great if using Linux without systemd was going to be a viable option. But if you're in production, if you're accepting real internet connections, if it's a customer-facing environment, it's time to step up and learn how to use your computer. And in this case, it means learn how to use systemd. All of your complaints you have in there about systemd, resolve-d, and all this stuff, it's you not knowing how to use your computer anymore. You are now one of those people that doesn't know how to use their computer. And you're blaming it on systemd. Think about that for a second. You're no better off than all of those users who blame something because they just simply don't know how to use it. That's you now. And if that's how that's, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I'm not saying you're not right. I'm saying go use something else now. Because you shouldn't be running some crazy ass fork like this that isn't being properly maintained. Okay, I'm almost done. I'm just going to wrap it up. The reason why Systemd was launched is because some of the things that Systemd replaced are no longer maintained by anyone. You understand that, right? You understand that. Systemd started not because they're like, hey, here's a random ass idea. Maybe we should just do X. It was because they were sitting around going, well, fuck, nobody's maintaining these super important open source projects anymore. And this stuff's falling behind. We got to do something. That's why Systemd came about. And when you understand that or that origin and then you look at people saying, well, don't let's not use Systemd. What they're saying is let's use software that's no longer maintained. That's dangerous. People packaging it for your distribution, your Dev1 or your Gen2 doesn't make it maintained. That just means it's packaged. There's a big difference there. And you have to understand that if you're running servers in production, especially customer facing. You got some desktop, you got some laptop, you got some personal home machine. I don't care, right? It doesn't make any difference. But if you're selling to customers and you got a responsibility here to keep these things secure and patched. That's how I feel about it. For me, the biggest problem I had was, it was mostly tone. Like, I'm not going to say they can't run a production grade facility on this operating system. Maybe they're give very it a skilled, skilled admins. Yeah, give it a go. Absolutely. And if this had been a case study in, hey, look, we tried out DevOn, we it scaled super well. We had no, you know, here's a, here's an example of how this really worked for us, and we're, it's successful in production. I would not have a problem with that. That's right. fine, right? But to imply that you can't do that with system or to despite, say that servers with systemd don't boot or reboot yeah right that which which is just insane hyperbole and maybe you did have problems it's not like systemd is perfect no one is claiming that in a real discussion right it's just and and it's fine if you want to run something else and you can do it in a maintainable sustainable secure way fine talk about that let's make that the story i would love to learn more about that that's not where we're at that's how i feel and then it just gets me all fired up and i'm like well now you're just Digging your head down and being a turd about it. Yeah, exactly. That article is riddled, riddled with confirmation bias. Yet he's accusing others of having confirmation bias. <laughs> That's true too, Eric. Good point. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyways, uh, I just can't believe it. You know, before the show started, we were talking about. Uh, the stuff in 2017 that's really left a mark on us in Linux. Well, we're going to talk about it more in a future episode. So we were just sort of brainstorming and looking, you know, you could almost flip it around and say, what kind of things can you just not believe we're not done talking about in 2017? Yes. Frickin' system day. Right? I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah, things that should have been over with in 2017. Yeah. Also, things that should be over with is frivolous lawsuits and trademark disputes. Ooh. So the software conservancy 
has a trademark dispute uh, put against them from the Software Freedom Law Center. We talked about this on a previous Linux Action News and on this show in the past. And now we have some additional clarifications by Bradley Kuhn, the uh, president of the Software Conservancy, the, the group that has the trademark action being taken against them from the Law Center. Law Center being run by Eben Moglen and the Conservancy being run by Bradley M. Kuhn. And uh, then you have the uh, executive director, Karen Sandler. I forget her exact title. Um, and they uh, they started a blog post that sort of blew this thing out into the public a couple of – about a month ago that they were being shut down by the Law Center for their, for their for trademark infringement of their name even though the Law Center was their law counsel for seven years and helped establish the Software Conservancy. So it was pretty weird. And uh, – What's happened now is they've actually filed their motion to have this entire case dismissed. And as part of that, in this judgment motion, they've had to put it all out there. They have the full filing. I have it linked in the show notes. It's long. It's 120 pages. And I read it this morning. And uh, I've never read um, so much uh, legalese in one sitting. I usually have to take it in spurts, but I wanted to get it all in before the show. Now, are you okay? It was... uh, That explains the gray hair. Okay. Oh, I tell you. And um, there's there is nothing that we didn't speculate in there. It uh, if you read the conservancy's filings, you'll see various examples of personal vendettas between Eben and or Evan and Bradley and Karen. There is bad blood there. I think would be a way you could put it, and uh, it's all laid out in the legal filing in a very matter of fact way. And um, this Software Freedom Law Center, which are the aggressors here, have a history of complaining to the Conservancy. Complaints about the organization's name were never among them, though, in the years that they have been complaining. Each time the Conservancy took the complaint seriously and each time discovered that they were generally just sort of over-the-top threats. And the Conservancy says, Bradley specifically says, I hesitated for years to talk publicly about this bad blood. Historically, I concluded that unilaterally exposing privately made specious claims interferes with the essential jobs of promoting and defending software freedom. Despite our differences, the Law Center is a fellow charity, and I have no wish for them to cease to exist. Only did they stop attacking us. A year ago, Mulgan publicly described certain GPL enforcement work to which I have contributed since the 90s as a jihad. I was offended because I have dedicated my life to nonviolent principled activism for social justice causes. Even so, I did not likewise assail in response. I sought to keep the discussion about policy and not her, not her uh, hyperbolic rhetoric. But on a, finally on a meta issue, and this is the point that I tried to make last time we covered this story. I've seen a lot of stories, blog stories, and comments on Linux or on LWN.net and other venues in the last few weeks about this matter. It seems to have burned more electricity and time than it warrants. I do appreciate the statements of support that so many of you have made, but I have a request. While I understand that this kind of situation generates an intriguing distraction and seemingly endless discussion, I encourage those of you who are otherwise software freedom contributors to temper your time investment. Faced with a petition to cancel our trademark, Conservancy must defend ourselves before the trademark board. But I loathe the idea that time-wasted damage of the law center's action may extend to other software freedom contributors and activities. In particular, I ask those of you who are Conservancy Project volunteers to avoid distraction by this. 
the work of the Conservancy member projects in the work is the work that the Software Freedom Law Center's actions seek to impede. So please don't allow them to break your focus and succeed, even just for a little bit. I completely agree that I hate when all of this um, lawyer stanky bullshit distracts from actually creating code. I hate it. And uh, what I respect about Bradley and Karen is they haven't been airing their dirty laundry with the law center when Eben's been contacting them saying, hey, I don't think you're doing this right. Hey, I think you ripped off some of our material. Hey, I don't think that's properly Creative Commons. Hey. And every time they have, they've been pretty receptive and they haven't come out and said, yeah, these guys over at the Law Center keep giving us a hard time. They've never done that until this came up. And they clearly state in their legal filing that they never received any kind of preemptive warning that this was coming. No tweet, no email, no text message, no phone call. Right. They didn't receive any kind of preemptive warning of this trademark dispute that was heading their way. And uh, they clearly think, and they position it so in their legal filing, that this is a vendetta, a personal vendetta, and the conservancy is taking the heat for what is a personal vendetta between the people running the conservancy and the people running the software law center. Freedom. Anyways. The names are hard to say. Yes, and um, it's kind of hard to watch because it is creating behind the scenes. I guess the meta story here is behind the scenes, there's a lot of connections. The Software Freedom Law Center has connections to the Linux Foundation. There's obvious contributors that have their software projects that are being managed by either of these entities. People that have worked with both these entities together yeah. when they were partners. A ton of middle ground here. There's a lot. And it's it's awkward because it's filled with landmines. And it's one of these things when you read the headline, you're like, oh, lawyers are making money. And then you realize, well, one of these is an umbrella organization that is essentially home to about 30 open source projects. And if they shut down, those open source projects are screwed. So there's real ramifications to projects that we all use. And at the end of the day, we just want to see them do well. I we tell can't you what. have nice things. Let's just. <laughs> this is why we can't ugh. have nice things, Wes. This is why, right here. It's really extremely frustrating. Let's distract ourselves with a little Gen 2 challenge. Just open up the challenge. Fascinating. It's Gen 2 challenge time, Wes. How are you feeling about today's Gen 2 challenge? Oh, boy. You feeling Getting like... System D right out of my life. Are you, uh. Are... How's your kernel build going? That's where we left off last week, right? Oh, it's finished now. We got oh, yeah? a kernel. So now we're doing our bootloader? You doing grub? What are you doing? What's, what's, where are you at right now? What's going uh, yeah, on? we're well. We're setting up. We're setting up uh, networks, some fstab, all that fun. Oh, stuff. Oh yeah. Uh, then we'll do the bootloader, and then maybe maybe a little later today, we're gonna see if this whole thing will reboot. Fascinating. All right, I look forward to it. We will check back in just a little bit. The Gen Two Challenge continues on. Yes, it does. This is week two. I think so. Wow. So I wonder if within within two episodes, if you're gonna get a graphical environment. Now, I, I wonder. I bet you'll get booting. Yeah, that's what I, I bet. I bet you won't get X until next week. next week we'll get some X oh, going. Then we're going to try to get some remote screen caps going and I'm all excited. kinds of stuff. So that's going to be good. That is really going to be good. So, um, Bashful, you're not running Gen 2, right? I mean, you're not running SystemD right now? Are you uh, – how are you doing this? How are you pulling this magnificent feat of engineering off? No, 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 I was making a joke. Oh. I said he was about to reboot Gen 2, and I said, not if it's running System D. Yeah, well, that's right. You can't. You can't. So. <laughs> system D not just doesn't doable. boot, right? No, you can't. Or reboot, Eric. Or configure it's your network. It's a feature. Wow. <laughs> I am using the wrong uh, system then, obviously. I, know. I have been for months. I'm an idiot. I, I didn't Years, even know. Years, in I, fact. And here I thought I was rebooting, booting, and having networking. I am such an Looked idiot. Looked like it to me. I'm sorry, guys. I apologize. Well, Wes, you continue on the good work. We'll check back in with you uh, towards the end of the show. We do have much, much, much to get into, including some community news. Let's take a moment and talk about the perfect holiday gift, Ting. 
Go to linux.ting.com. Support the show and get $25 off a device or $25 in service credits. And here's why I say that, because if you bring a device, that's the way to go. They got CDMA and GSM. This is how I got into Ting. You following me? See, I brought over an old uh, Evo 4G CDMA phone. I got $25 in Ting credit when I did that. $25. I was Dang. like, okay, I'll play with this. I'll play with this, right? What's $25 going to get me? Like uh, 15 minutes, <laughs> you know? Paid for more than my first month. Paid, yeah, the average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month because it's $6 for the line. And then just your usage on top of that, your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. And then whatever Uncle Sam's going to cut, that's sort of unique to your area. But you just pay for what you use. It's a fair price, however much you talk, however much text or data you use. Nationwide coverage, no contracts, no other termination fees, limited Linux.ting.com. You're in control. You get to see usage. You get to take uh, alerts. You can set like, hey, I'm, you've used uh, 15 megabytes. Send an alert. Or, hey, you've used 20 gigabytes. Send an alert. You've used 15 messages. You've used 15,000 messages. Whatever is your mark, you can start generating alerts for you. They have a great dashboard to manage all of it. Fantastic customer service and a ton of good devices. I'm going to give a shout out, though, to the Motorola Moto G5S Plus. Ting's got it in stock. And you can get it unlocked, no contract, no determination fee, pay for what you use, not interrupting your experience. If there's an update, you get it, $254 from Ting. Pay for what you use. Nice. Now, the stock thing, the thing, the, 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 the downside, like the downside to the G5, to me, isn't that big of a downside. So it, the, where they save their money on the G5S is the storage. It comes with 32 gigabytes of built-in storage. But you can put up to 128 gigabytes of additional storage with the micro SD slot. And one of my favorite things about this series of phone is it has the turbo power charging. So you can get up to six hours of power in 15 minutes when you plug your phone wow. in. So like just driving somewhere, you get six hours of battery life. And, and it has a 401 PPI screen. And Gorilla Glass 3. This is a serious, oh, and uh, fingerprint unlock. This is a really nice phone with a really clean Android experience. Under $300, unlocked, pay for what you use. Motorola GS, G5S Plus, $254 when you go to linux.ting.com. Wow. Because you're going to take $25 off the device. That'll knock it down from 280 If you need a new phone, maybe you think a little present for the yes. holidays, this is yeah. perfect. The other thing is, is well, I don't know why, the trend is, is going in the wrong direction. This has a physical button, just one physical button to take you back to the home screen, and has a headphone jack. Which, uh, so you got, you got micro SD, 401 PPI screen, Gorilla Glass 3, and you get six hours of battery life and a 15-minute charge, all metal design, and a fingerprint unlock. For $254, pay for what you use. This is a great phone. Ooh. This is, and, or you just bring your own. Just start by going to linux.ting.com. linux.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Unplugged program. linux.ting.com. Go there. Go there and check out the blog, too. I want to give a shout-out to Mailspring. I'm, I've installed it this week on all of my systems. And if you remember Nelaus, I know you turned me on Nelaus. Yeah. So thank you to that, because this is the continuation of Nelaus. I've yet to try it, but boy, We've this talked makes me about curious. It. Yeah, you and I have talked about it for weeks. And uh, Mailspring works with all IMAP providers, works with Gmail and a lot of the other online ones. The thing that's that's nice about Mailspring is, first of all, they have a pretty decent Linux user base, over 10,000 active Linux users, so it actually matters to the developer. I like that. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that's really nice about it is they've just this week packaged it up as a snap. So check this out. Hey, yo. Now, we're, can, see, I don't know if they have a... 
So if you go to their website right now, if you go to Mail, so go to their Mailspring website there, Wes. You go to the Mailspring website. I know you're in the, in the middle of installing Gentoo, but if you go to getmailspring.com and then you go to uh, download Mailspring and you click on the GNU slash Linux option, their first option here is Linux auto-updating snap. Yeah, wow, look at that. How great is that? And they've got the traditional dev and RPM, if that's yes. for you. Yes, yes, they do. Yes, but they I'm on do. an Arch over here, so right. that Snap sounds great. Well, and so here's what's so nice about MailSpring. Um, if you're using Thunderbird and you've been looking for another local email client, give it a look, because it works super well with multiple accounts, so that, for me, is a killer feature. And it supports unified inbox for ser- searches. I like that a lot. Now, I don't have experience with MailSpring, but I assume this is similar to the way Naleas did. But the real freaking creepy magic that I love is the read receipts, link tracking, and more. It's like genuine. It's read receipts if you could redo the way read receipts worked in 2017. And it I don't know how they do it, but it's great because it gives me push notifications when somebody's opened my email to my desktop and it uses the GNOME notifications systems. And so it integrates in with my desktop, or in this case, Unity. And it's a brilliant way to know right before somebody's going to email me. Because everybody opens up their last email that they got from you before they send you another email. Yeah, right. So I get a good 30 to 30 second to, to, to 15 minute heads up before I get an email. And I can just sort of mentally prepare myself for it. It's got great shortcuts, super nice search. It's got a dark theme that looks good on uh, on Linux. Oh, and yeah, it um, uh, it it it'll, it'll tie in with like it'll look at people's like LinkedIn profiles and it has uh, multiple uh, theme support. It has a pro version, and the reason I mentioned that is because it actually has a monetization strategy that isn't like advertising or tracking you. I was about to say, I think you do need the pro to get some of those things like link tracking and the quick reply templates, which is also great for somebody that gets a lot of emails. But like you said, like it's nice to see this this open source project. Yeah, they've got they've got some you know some long term stuff going. Yeah. If they can actually get some good revenue. Exactly. So uh, Ben is one of the the lead developers of the project, and uh, I invited Ben on the show next week if it works out for him. It's crazy with the holidays and all of that, but right. I just I want to talk to him and say, hey, did you did you expect such a big Linux reaction? And uh, does it change the way you're developing this? And why why build it in the technologies you have? And why are you continuing this when there's something like Thunderbird out there? Why not just contribute to Thunderbird? And uh, I've got I've got my assumptions to those answers, but I'd really like to hear Ben's Absolutely. answers. And so I sent him an invite. He was going to try to make it today, but he had something come up. Couldn't make it today because it was kind of a last minute thing and uh, might be able to make it next week. Really? Anytime. I mean, yeah, really. I'm excited. I've been using it now. I've got it installed on all of my systems, so I'll just keep using it to have more things to ask him about it. Now, you know every now and then, Wes, the mainstream media tries to cover something that's our wheelhouse. This is CNN Breaking News. And they just really blow it. They really blow it. <laughs> so bad. So uh, Afronaut Mark Shuttleworth has become a billionaire from his bet on Ubuntu Linux software, according to Bloomberg. And they have one of these pictures of Mark where if, uh, if you have – if you've seen Mark in the last few years, Mark doesn't look a lot – I mean – Mark looks fine, but Mark doesn't look like this anymore. This is an old picture, right? So it's like yeah. always funny when people go to like 10 years ago and get like these really what? old This is fo- 2002. <laughs> yeah. Like what? I know. So uh, Spaceman Mark Shuttleworth um, was interviewed by Bloomberg. Not a Ubuntu creator, not a canonical CEO. No, no, Spaceman. Spaceman Mark Shuttleworth. <laughs> Is that like uh, where you've served in a political office once and then you get that title as an honorific forever? Once I mean, you go to space, that's I guess, it. kind of. Because, like, how many people have gone to space? It's a handful yeah, of people. So, yeah, so the headline on Bloomberg.com is literally 
Spaceman Shuttleworth finds earthly riches with Ubuntu software. <laughs> Not the editor's best day. Oh man! So uh, why why such a why such a ham-fisted headline and why Bloomberg? Why Bloomberg? Well. This is a messaging piece. You see, kids, this is canonical positioning themselves for a little investment. This is Mark communicating to the investment community. That's what Bloomberg's all about. They're all about the investment community. So it's been written for that audience. So I'm going to read a little bit of it. Keep in mind, though, this isn't really for us. This is this is for the investing audience. And um, it's... It's pretty bad. So they say he's best known for being the world's first Afronaut, but since returning to Earth from his 2002 trip on the Russian Soyuz TM-34 rocket ship, Cape Town native Mark Shuttleworth set about with the conquest of much more lucrative universe, the Internet of Things. As if in 2002, the Internet of Things was even some stupid term we were using back then. Exploding (laughs) all over the place. I love it. Shuttleworth created Ubuntu, an open-source Linux operating system that helps connect everything from drones to thermostats to the Internet. His company, Canonical Group, makes money from about 800 paying customers, which is the first time we've ever gotten a number publicly, including Netflix, Tesla, Deutsche Telekom. They all pay for support services. Of course, they don't mention HP, Dell, you know. <laughs> Any of those. No. no. It, success has helped boost the net worth, his net worth, Mark's net worth, to $1 billion. But Mark says it is destructive to focus on that. It's just a distraction. And you have to keep your finger on what's the pulse for next. Now, it's funny how they position this. Um, so they use terms, again, you have to keep the market audience in mind here. Uh, they use terms that are rough. So Mark Shuttleworth in this interview, which is the sort of the pull quote is the industry term for this. He has a pull quote that is pretty good. He did a really good job, actually. And the pull quote is, um, open source is defining innovation in 2017. and Or today, he says, it is the defining innovation of today. It says, he went on to say that it gives me the luxury of being able to focus on things that I thought were really meaningful and interesting and deep. Open source software is deep. You have to get under the hood a little bit. Then you realize it's everywhere. It's defining innovation today. What do you think of that? Because I think if you ask the average Bloomberg consumer who's defining innovation today, they'd say Apple or Google yeah, right. or Amazon. It'd be a big uh, proprietary company of some sort. But I think this actually, while obvious, gives you the insight to the layer that Mark Shuttleworth works on. Because Mark knows, because he's an intelligent man, that all of these companies that are making their billions of dollars right now are doing it, essentially, on the backs of open source. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. Right. Absolutely, right? I mean, these are these are the underpinnings in the engine house of a lot of these companies. Right. And it's always this, like, where you see about the, yeah, the big managed services, the things that the everyday consumer uses. You hear a lot about those, but you don't hear about back-end infrastructure. Right. So you've got Google, obviously very, very dependent on Linux for everything from their ad platform to Android. You've got Amazon, the entire EC2 infrastructure and the Echo infrastructure and all of the things that support their e-commerce infrastructure, Linux. You've got Apple. Everything that's in iOS and macOS is BSD-based. It comes from so many open-source de- developed applications and libraries. But you also don't hear about it, but you know what their cloud runs a bunch on? Linux servers. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess he's kind of right. And so this is the area where I think investors read this and they go, oh, yeah. So this is what Shuttleworth is working on. Oh, okay. Um, now, they also talk about how Shuttleworth started programming Ubuntu years ago. <laughs> 
and stuff like that. So it's it's pretty bad. Um, <clears throat> but there is one other quote in here that I thought, well, what the hell does that mean? And I kind of want to get the mumbles take on this. The vision for Canonical is to provide the platform that you see everywhere other than the personal domain. Other than the personal domain. We won't make a dent in phone or PCs. But pretty much your entire data center runs Linux, and every other thing in the room is running Linux. What do you think of that, Bashful? I mean, you're working on a Linux desktop distro right now. And Mark says, we won't make a dent in phones or PCs. Is he talking just investor speak there, or do you think he actually believes it? I think it's a bit of both. He's looking at what's profitable, which, I mean, running a business, you can't really blame them. But where they're making their dollars and cents is not on, you know, the desktop and things like that. It's all, you know, server support or uh, the data center stuff, their Kubernetes, you know, all of that stuff's where they're pushing hard as a quote unquote company, you know, and even the snap initiative really drives that as well you know it's like availability of software their snappy core stuff for the iot the desktop you know they obviously haven't bailed on it but it's not their focus as a company they're still heralding it you know being a um a curator of sorts if you think about it but isn't uh isn't the server a pc well, is it? No, I suppose not in it terms. Is. It is in terms of platform and you know architecture, but I suppose not in the way the market talks it's about. Not it, right? a personal computer. Yeah, right. It's not a yeah, personal like, computer. Because he already said it's not like the consumer front, right? He yeah. didn't say PC is in servers and underlying infrastructure. He's just talking about like you know what Apple's doing, or or even to a degree some of the other vendors. You mean those guys are out in front in your home? Yeah, that's Canonical. true. And they're, people, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I wonder too if there's any signaling to maybe more of some savvy investors that have followed the company for a while and were perhaps worried about some of their direction. Is this you know a little bit like hmm. reassuring that like yeah. This is this is our new focus. This is our focus. We've trimmed, we're, we're not going to be silly. Yeah, we're, we're not, not going to be. We're silly. not trying any more phones. We're not really pushing to compete with Windows or Mac OS. I want to hear. So, hey, citizen, what is your take on Mark's on Mark's quote here? Is it disingenuous? Um, I don't know. Do you feel like I really don't know? I mean, to me, it feels a little disingenuous. I'm going to be honest. It feels disingenuous to me. It feels like, well, I have these staff members, and I know what they're working on, and I have these contracts with Dell and uh, HP, Lenovo, and others, and I'm I'm making a pretty good profit off them, but I don't want to talk about it. Doesn't that give you pause a little bit, Mr. Citizen? I mean, to me, it does. Just Just a slight degree. Like, I'm a little worried that I've just sort of switched everything over to Ubuntu Desktop. Just a tad. Should I not be? Yeah, it's hard to know... Like what the agenda is, yeah. what, if there's maybe the some, something and... not being told, right. or something is being told that may may or may not be true. Right. I I uh, I kind of sit back and go, well, you're right from a revenue standpoint. You probably never will. And there's probably no other company that's going to get in on this game at this point. It's not like um, Samsung's not going to come along and launch the Samsung desktop. The Chromebook is the closest we've gotten yeah. to cracking the du- desktop duopoly in decades. But we're also, like, you and I, we're in a different position in that, like, you maybe aren't looking to the same extent for, like, this complete, like, a Windows 10-style desktop. Right. And I think, like, as we've seen maybe with Fedora and Red Hat as a parallel, there is enough, like, I think, incentive to maintain the developer or power user-focused desktop just in terms of, like, I want to use Ubuntu to develop Ubuntu. 
Yeah, fair enough. And that's all part of your ecosystem. Right. It's all part of your eco. But it is not the big thing that you're really pushing to the market. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, speaking of ecosystems, uh, Steam has made an adjustment that I think Linux users should be made aware of just so that way they can vote a little bit to get developers to support more Linux development. You um, may be hurt. Yeah. So Valve has made a change to the developer side of Steam that actually gives them more information. It gives developers a breakdown of the different platforms that people are choosing when they add a game to their wish list. You know, you might think that this is a small change, but I happen to know from a Netflix developer that this is how Netflix signs multi-billion dollar content deals. Is they... (laughs) They actually look at what's in your wish list, what's in your queue versus what you're watching. And if they have if they have tens of thousands of users that have a show or a movie in their wish list, they work way harder to get that content provider to license it for Netflix. Steam developers can now take the same tact. See, now platforms that don't currently or games that don't currently support the Linux platform will at least get a vote to let the developer know that, hey, there's some interest here to get your port over to that platform that might not be Windows. And, um, you know, it's also going to be the same for Mac users. But now when you add something, you say, I want the Linux version, they're going to get that metric back, which may actually end up in getting us a few more Linux games. Yeah, who knows? But from the developer perspective, it's pretty hard to be motivated if you just have a big question mark, right? Like yeah. you're, maybe you don't even use Linux. You've heard about it. Maybe some people emailed you saying they want it, but right. I don't you really get a couple what, of tweets. Yeah, what percentage is this? Yeah. Is there really any revenue here? I don't know. And it means as Linux users, we need to start adding this stuff to our wish list. Yes, right. That's the thing we can do. And um, and then maybe the developers <laughs> uh, will sneeze. Maybe they'll sneeze, and then when they sneeze... We'll get lucky, and they'll make a game out of it. Yeah, they'll they'll accidentally hit the export option for Linux. Yes. (laughs) I'm going to give a quick mention for Linux Fest Northwest 2018, April 28th through the 29th. Wes and I will be there with our pants on. I'm so excited. And uh, we invite you to be there with your pants on as well. It's going to be a good Linux Fest. 19 freaking years of Linux Fest. That's that's stupid. Hey, boy. Wow. Wow. Wow, that's really something, huh? And rumor has it... And I thought Linux was just a fad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Rumor has it that Alan Jude, that free BSD loving Alan Jude, might make it again this Is year. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Oh boy! I'm trying to talk of a couple other people into making it out here. A few of our other friends from other shows that we oh, do. I like that. Trying to yeah, get that gotta, all worked out. We'll lay the peer pressure on them. Yeah, and we're also already discussing party options. So if you could make it out of Linux Fest Northwest 2018, I highly encourage it. And uh, go to linuxfestnorthwest.org for more information. I'm giving them a little plug because we're going to be there, and we're doing something totally different this year. Uh, I hope it's going to be good, but now that we're not doing less, like it's our opportunity yep. to totally refactor the way we do Linux Fest. Even more reasons for you to come. I remember I, there used to be a time, Wes, when I used to go to Linux Fest before I actually did any shows. And I would sit there with my notebook and uh, sometimes Angela would come with me and she'd take notes too. And then I would sit there and I would go back and I would do all the cool stuff that I'd learned at Linux Fest at work. Nice. And then I sat down and I did all that stuff and I went, shit, this is so awesome. I got to do a podcast about this. And that's how we got last. Here we are today. <laughs> so at Linux Fest Northwest has a real special heart, a real special place in my heart. Also, I guess while I'm sharing all, uh, one of the cool things about Linux Fest Northwest for me is that it was, uh, I, had a, I, had a, I had a teacher in high school, uh, Mr. Bassett, who made some really cool open source software, by the way. This guy, he helped me get into Debian, and he wrote some really great uh, open source attendance management and grade management software. And um, he and I used to drive up to Linux Fest Northwest when I was, you know, 20 years ago, 
when Linux Fest Northwest was brand new and I was a young pup, I, I, I was I was out of school, but not by much back then. Jesus, I'm old. And uh, and I would go with my old teacher, my old high school teacher. That's awesome. And we'd go to Linux Fest Northwest. Yeah. And so then it's just over the years. It's it's uh, it's it's really I mean, so if you think more. about the number of people, even if even counting people have only been there once or, you know, but just especially having been there and seen people who've just kind of wandered in from the community or weren't that big into it or came down from the local school. Or just trying out Linux, they've heard this thing, or, hey, there's some event going on here. What is this? What are all these people doing? It's really touched a huge yes. number of people. Yeah. Speaking of touching people, let's go over and touch our servers. A little bit of touching servers right now. Nothing's better than touching servers, getting getting your hands-on experience with some open-source software. And Wes, you hear it right here? You know what I have right here? Well, you got secrets. I got fresh secrets. I've got pages and pages of secrets. You want me to share them with you? Oh, please I'm ready. do. Otherwise, I'll have to steal them after the show. Understood. Understood. DigitalOcean.com. You go over there and learn about all of the secrets. Use our promo code DOUnplugged. DOUnplugged. It's one word. You get a $10 credit at DigitalOcean.com. You can get started in less than 55 seconds and spin up a system on their awesome Infrastructure. Everything's SSDs. They got Ubuntu, Fedora, CentOS, Core OS. I mean, they probably have uh, Uncle Joe OS, and they even have FreeBSD. They got block storage. They got object storage. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference? How would you describe the difference between block storage? I guess I would describe block storage as, hey, you know how you can hook up a storage device to your Linux box and it shows up as like a dev slash SD device? That's block storage. Object storage it sounds it sounds too meta, but I would describe it as programmable storage. Yeah, right. It's a it's a higher level of abstraction where instead of thinking about blocks and having to format a file system, yes. you're just saying, "Hey, I want this file. Put it somewhere for and, me." And the back end just manages all that stuff and generates the storage Deal for you. Puts it somewhere on all those SSDs, yep. and then you can destroy it. You can set time expirations. It's great. They got team support if you're an open source group or you're working by yourself and want to bring somebody else in eventually. And everything is super fast networking. Forty gigabit connections coming into the hypervisors, monitoring and metrics to tell you how things are doing. Load balancing as a service, firewall at the network level, and an API that is simple and easy to use with tons of open source applications. I love that API. Yeah, it is oh nice. And oh. the nice thing about it is so much stuff's already built around it, too. You yeah, can just use app, it. There's a ton of apps, a ton of it. scripts. It's supported with a bunch of things, you know, all yeah. the tools, Terraform, Vagrant, all the stuff you're already using. Yep, yep. But when I'm sitting by the fire at night, Wes, and I'm rocking in my chair and sipping on a little whiskey, I think to myself, nothing's like that dashboard. They got a dashboard for days. It's simple. It's easy to use. It's fast. It works on your tablet. It works on your phone. It works on your web browser. I don't care what you use, and they don't either. And they got apps on top of it. It's... It's so nice. It is It is so damn nice. I am so appreciative that they have really done this well. And I think that their interface is actually an API client. I'm not positive about that, but it seems to, it seems to be as soon as they add something to the API, the interface has it. As soon as they add something to the interface, the API has it. So I think their super good UI is actually an API client, which is... It's all dog food. Mind-blowing. DigitalOcean.com. Create your account. Use the promo code unplugged, And uh, go look at a couple of their different tutorials right now. I like this one. I mentioned this on Coda Radio recently. How to create a highly available setup with heartbeat and floating IPs on Ubuntu 16.04 LTS. That's boss level right there. And 
in, in look at this guide. Like even if you're not a DigitalOcean customer, just shut up and go over here. Look at this thing. Look at this freaking chart. Yeah, this diagrams with and... animations, dude. Whoa. And then you notice when you click on it to get a bigger version of the animations, it doesn't like take over the full screen. It just pushes the content below down a little oh, that's bit. So considerate. Look how nice that is. Like this is so well formatted that if you literally had no idea what failover and heartbeat was, you could read this and understand it. And if you'd set it up before and just need a refresher, you could jump around and set it up. It's 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 freaking magic, Wes. It just kind of brings a tear to me. I DigitalOcean.com. Go over there, create your account. D O Unplugged is the promo code. You get the ten dollar credit. You can try out their five dollar rig, two months for free. It's magic. I assume. I don't, I, There's I mean, no other way to explain it. Ponies and fairies. It's the only way. DigitalOcean.com. Promo code D O Unplugged, and maybe a little Linux and open source in there as well. Maybe. 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 No Devlon though. Let's talk about platforms. Um. I actually uh, this this paper I was making noises with here earlier. I printed my statement out actually. This wow. actually what this is. This okay. is a printed. So it is secret. Uh, I got a printed statement for you, Wes. I got a printed statement. Lay it on me. Mm, a couple of things have happened this week that have pushed this topic, I think, to the front of my mind. Um, it's all about platforms. It's all about commercial, proprietary, lockdown, closed source, pain in my ass platforms. Pain in your ass too, audience. Let's talk about it for a second. So this is this is on the backs of a new YouTube and Amazon and Google war. This is on the backs of big leaks coming out about YouTube demonetization Ugh. policies and uh, the way they walk people through it. It's all about platforms. It's about building the biggest platform with the most engaged users, with the most control over what they can and can't do. YouTube is a platform. iPhone, iOS, platform. Patreon is a platform. LibrePay is also a platform. It feels like the walls on all of these platforms are closing in tighter and tighter than ever before. It's, and then you combine the, the weight of net neutrality on top of all of this as if it's about to lock all of these new regimes in, all of these platform regimes into place. Early Linux users watched this as Microsoft used the position of their platform, the Windows desktop, to keep Linux off the desktop, to keep Linux off of hardware. And now these platform wars that used to be the defining thing about the technology industry, the Microsoft platform war, now they happen every single day at an exponential rate across every tech category. Just just recently, Google has started blocking YouTube on the Echo Show's because Amazon doesn't sell Nest cameras and Chromecast on Amazon.com. So everybody who's bought uh, an uh, Amazon Echo Show to watch YouTube videos, yeah, screw you. Too bad. It's always the users who lose on these platform wars. The creators, the users, and the large corporations, they don't care. There, there, there's, no, there's no cost to the collateral damage for them. The collateral damage being the end users. And we're starting to see some cracks, I think, in these platforms. There's a couple of open source solutions coming, but they're not quite there yet. So I want to talk about where, which ones we do have, where they're at, and how we could start using them as Linux users. Now, if you're watching the video version right now, you're going to see um, women bending over and showing their asses. You're going to see a guy's junk in tight underwear, and you're going to see a, an Asian woman showing her breasts. Uh, what it's you, not Chris's background. No. I know it's tempting. Not yet. But what it what it is is the YouTube guide on how people should decide how they should flag sex, nudity, 
or other controversial topics. And it's all very fucking subjective. What they consider inappropriate and these heroes of YouTube who are answering these things. And this is a real problem. It really shuts down speech. And that's the antithesis of what open source is about. So I want to look at solutions that we can take on as a group to get rid of these platforms. What can we start using in place of YouTube, for example? I mean, there's nothing quite locked in yet, but there are some options on the horizon. And I think for a moment here, I want to talk about PeerTube, which I'm pretty excited about. It's a federated video streaming platform using BitTorrent directly in the web browser with WebTorrent and Angular. And its early days is definitely a work in progress. But if you think about it, legitimately, guys, we have zero chance of some other commercial company coming along and offering streaming alternatives that are commercially viable to YouTube or Dailymotion or Vimeo. It's not going to happen. It can't. It's just the peering agreements in place and the net neutrality rules that are about to change. The huge backers involved. The the massive amount of money, the corporate interest... One organization alone doesn't have enough money to pay the bandwidth and the storage for something like this. It has to be peer-to-peer. The next replacement for Facebook and Twitter and YouTube have to be peer-to-peer and decentralized. So we have to get this working. And you need something like PeerTube, which is using peer-to-peer software on the back end. And WebTorrent makes all the stuff. They actually have a demo I'll link to it in the show notes, and uh, they have a GitHub page, but you can go to peertube.cpy.re, and you can actually start to watch demos, and it's pretty nice. So I'm watching right now a video on Peertube, and it shows how many peers are seeding it, shows me my quality, all of that, and you've got comments down here just like you would on YouTube. Actually, I don't see comments, but you've, it looks just like YouTube, and it's streaming over WebTorrent in my browser. One of the nice things about this is that they don't, get, they don't get punished if somebody's video goes viral or somebody gets popular because the more people watch it, the more people distributing. So it's an obvious replacement. And there could be something else that comes along. I'd like to hear the audience's recommendations, but PeerTube seems like a, a pretty, pretty good replacement for YouTube who is – they allow these creepy like uh, uh, Elsa videos. Have you seen this stuff? Like Spider-Man yeah. has sex with Elsa kind of stuff. Meanwhile, uh, BSD Now and Linux Action News – on a, and ask Noah on a weekly basis, get demonetized. We're pretty extreme over here on JB. Yeah, we're super extreme. But meanwhile, Spider-Man can dry hump Elsa, and it's totally fine. It can make millions of dollars. But it's just good old-fashioned fun. God forbid Alan you'd talk about ZFS. He does, get, he does get pretty excited. Yeah he, gets, so. yeah, he gets really excited. But this week, the real cluster bomb has been Patreon. They really pissed off a bunch of people. They changed the way the fee structure worked. They essentially raised rates on all of our patrons. They communicated in a way that was slightly disingenuous, and it caused, yeah. a, as one would expect, an internet outrage mob seeking justice. And, uh, I, I mean, I can't, I can't even tell you how many times... It was demanded that I give a response immediately to what Patreon has done. Uh, as I record this, I, I, I checked uh, a day ago. We've had 17 people cancel their Patreon accounts. No longer supporting Jupiter Broadcasting wow. yeah. because of a change Patreon's made. Nothing, Something completely out of my control and ultimately a change that gives the creators more money. But people are pissed because they, they were already at the line. They couldn't really afford more and something just changed on them. Now, one of the number one solutions that I have had suggested to me is LibrePay. LibrePay is a recurrent donations platform. 
Now, the thing with LibrePay is it suffers the same problem that Facebook and YouTube and Patreon and Twitter all suffer. It's a centralized platform. In fact, in fact, because of all the attention they've been receiving recently, it wasn't until today that I could even load their webpage. Couldn't even, people have been telling me, demanding, screaming at me all week to switch to LibrePay. I couldn't even get en.librepay.com to load until today. In fact, I wasn't even sure if it would load for this show so I could show it to you on the screen. That's how, they just aren't there yet. It's a centralized server that is, that is kicking out a few hundred bucks a month to creators. There's nothing that's fundamentally different here. They still have to go through the banking system. They still have to do clearing of credit card transactions. It suffers all of the same damn problems as a centralized platform. Yeah, the, the server code's open source, but it doesn't solve the problem. Right. There's still this middleman between you and the people. You don't have any control as long right. as they do what's in your interest. Okay. But yeah. as we see, yeah. that is not always the case. And sure, you know, I'm some podcaster, but what about the developer of your favorite file system? What about the developer of your favorite Linux desktop application? What about the creator of your favorite distribution? How do we fund open source software in a world where a platform can make a change that pisses off a huge percentage of your users and in a world where the internet is ready to go to mob justice mode in two seconds flat they go from zero to mob justice in two seconds the one it takes one tweet one facebook post one link in irc full mob justice mode so how can a content creator or an open source developer secure reliable development? I mean, holy shit, am I glad I'm not Ike Doherty right now. Am I so glad I'm not Ike trying yeah. to develop the Solus project right now? Because people are pissed off about Patreon, and he just went full frickin' time off of Patreon. And people are pulling off. Yeah, I think he's, I think he's something like on Late Night Linux. I think he said he had 22 people cancel their subscriptions. That's stressful. That is stressful. Yeah, right. Absolutely. We've got to build in a way to prevent this problem because as long as one central authority has control over the platform, they're going to make changes users don't like, especially as Patreon begins to get more profitable. They start looking at larger creators who have people that are maybe donating more money, $10,000 more a month creators. That's the real, that's the sweet spot for them. Yes. There's less incentive to work with people that are supporting one or two creators. So everybody says go to LibrePay. But LibrePay has some of the same limitations and essentially has the same fee structure as Patreon. What do you do? Yeah, you know, and it's other contexts we talk about, like with these services. Yeah, you just like, you know, you know, you might have to move. And that works okay for the personal use base. But when you're, you're trying to run a small business or you're trying to right. be an independent creator, that kind of churn ruins it. The only long-term solution I can think is you have to get rid of a centralized platform. A central point of failure. And you see, it's, it's funny that we're having all these conversations about YouTube demonetization or YouTube censorship, net neutrality, or Twitter being shit. All of these conversations are happening at once. And there's another big conversation that's happening right now that may actually be giving us the answer to the LibrePay problem, to the Patreon problem, to the PayPal problem to the credit card transaction processing problem. Like, I could build my own system for Jupiter Broadcasting. Donation page, a subscription model, and just get rid of Patreon. You know, have somebody write something that uses Stripe for the back end with a custom page, and all of it is managed by us internally. Maybe even hire another person to actually stay on top of all that, like Philip DePranko has. But I'm still using Stripe. I'm still using a central clearinghouse. And Stripe is still trying to do batch processing with banks. I'm still 
stuck to a platform that doesn't have my best interests or my users' best interests at heart. But for weeks and months and years, we've been talking about something that solves this problem today. It's free. It's open source. It's available to anyone on the internet. It's cryptocurrency. See, cryptocurrency solves this problem. There's no bank. There's no central clearinghouse. There's no processor. There's no middleman. You have your cryptocurrency, and you send it to your creator. Now, I know it's too early days for this to actually take off and replace Patreon, but again, a lot of this stuff is. So is PeerTube. It's early days. And we've all talked about Bitcoin, but not a lot of discussion has been had on these shows about Dash. Now, Dash, just as an example, I'm not saying everybody should go buy Dash, but Dash is an example of something that one day could replace PayPal, could replace Patreon, could replace LibrePay. And they've done a couple of things that are better than Bitcoin. You know, uh, do you remember remember one of the cool things about Skype before Microsoft bought them was they had this really nice peer-to-peer network that the FBI bitched that they couldn't get access to? Yes, I do. That was a big deal back then. Yeah, yeah, right. And then as the Skype network grew... You had this problem where the peer-to-peer network was so large that you didn't know who was online. You couldn't really coordinate it all. So then you had these master nodes develop, yep. which was still part of the peer-to-peer network. And then, and then that, would sort of, that would sort of be like the master repository of information. Dash sort of launches with that concept. They call it a next-generation P2P network. At Dash, at Dash, its core is a unique, fully incentivized peer-to-peer network where miners are rewarded for securing the blockchain and master nodes are rewarded for validating, storing, and serving the blockchain to users. Now, what does that mean? What does any of that shit mean? It means they have reliable, fast transactions that don't have a huge transaction fee and a huge leg like Bitcoin, and it's anonymous as shit. That's the thing. Master nodes represent a new layer of network servers that work in the highly secure cluster called quorums to provide a variety of decentralized services like instant transactions, privacy and self-governance, and eliminating the threat of low-cost network attacks. So this is an area, it's a self-governing, self-funding protocol that's anonymous. It, ha- it solves some of the um, tracking problems that Bitcoin has. It solves some of the transaction uh, validation problems that Bitcoin has. And currently, as we record this episode, the uh, Dash coin is at $800 a coin. So it's, it's also a pretty high-functioning, high-value cryptocurrency. Yeah, last year that was, uh, that was big money in the cryptocurrency yeah. game. and it still is, really. It really and, is, and yeah, absolutely. It's open source. It's, it's fully open source. It has a masternode system for fast transactions. And you could see how open source developers and content creators could potentially build a funding model around something like this. It's going to ha- guys, I know some of you out there hate cryptocurrencies. It's going to have to be something like this. It has to be. Because anytime you come back to a clearinghouse, anytime you come back to the banks, you end up with your PayPal, your Square, your Patreon situations. Every damn time. There's no way around it. And in, in, in particular, in some of these cases, you're, you're uniquely tied to U.S. institutions as well, which for 30% of you out there that listen to this show is not applicable to you. Right. And we've seen a ton of problems with like maybe there's different laws. You're developing open source that's legal in your country but not in the U.S. There's it's, all kinds of things. Geez, that could – think about this for a second. Think about all of the talk recently about installing backdoors into encryption and secure protocols. Right. About how all of that could change when if you are a open source rogue developer making software that doesn't have backdoor encryption, 
I could see the federal government pressuring PayPal to discontinue your donations. Yeah, absolutely. We have seen that with WikiLeaks. Yep. Once I, it becomes political, I mean, all things are out the, out the window. And again, the, the idea of this segment here is how do we create something that's truly decentralized, that is platform-free, that if you were today to have all of the time in the world to build all these different – like a peer tube system and a, and a dash power donation system, you could really divorce yourself – from these information silos on the internet. But there's one last piece that I think is fairly important. Not a big fan of social networking, but I can't deny the value. It is useful. And this is another area where we have a pretty hard lock right now with Twitter and Facebook. Now, we all know about Mastodon. It's the world's largest free open source decentralized microblogging network where you can really build a custom community. So now we're talking PeerTube. Peer-to-peer torrent-based YouTube. Now we're talking Dash. Peer-to-peer decentralized funding models. And now Mastodon. Peer-to-peer decentralized federated microblogging for communities, all kinds of aspects. Or, or maybe instead of Mastodon, if Mastodon's, because it's not my thing. It's not my thing. If Mastodon's not your thing, maybe something like Matrix. Rocket Chat. Something like these, where... We have individual components now that are getting pretty damn good. They've come a long way. Yeah, especially Mastodon and Matrix and Rocket Chat. They could truly replace Slack and Twitter and Facebook and Skype. Decentralized, federated, ready to go. Open source code. Nobody owns it. These components are coming together. Cryptocurrencies play a piece in this. Mastodon plays a piece in this. Web torrents and PeerTube play a piece. I don't know if PeerTube is going to be it. But surely some of you have thought around, sat around and gone, what the hell is it going to take to, to replace Facebook? What's it going to take to MySpace Facebook? What's it going to take to replace YouTube? What's it going to take to replace Google Docs? It seems like an intractable... Like when, at the, when Windows 98 second edition released... And Windows 2000 released. I couldn't foresee a world where the entire industry wasn't completely dominated by right? Microsoft. Yeah, that, it was, was, that was the future then. It was impossible to see it because Microsoft owned the entire landscape at that moment. That's what serious people did to get work done. Yes, to make money. We're at the, we're at the same point now where there's these open source initiatives, these P2P initiatives, these decentralized initiatives that are making cracks in these platforms – Nobody's giving you one solution that ties it all together. Nobody's just going to give you a package where you can go create an account and link it with your Facebook account and get going. It's not there yet. But if you know how to spin up a few servers, you know how to set up a few systems, you could replace a lot of these information empires now with open source software. And I I don't know if it's there. I don't think any of it's quite there for JB because the, the core problem with people that are creating a lot of content or people that are writing a lot of code and open source is that's what you have time for. That's what you have passion for, and that's what you have time for. You don't have time to go build this stuff. At the end of the day, we've tried to use Matrix. We ended up back on Slack because we don't have time to run Matrix. But I feel good that it's close. Like, it's so close that I can almost taste it. Like, I could almost launch a podcasting network based on these technologies today, almost, 
and get somewhere with it. I wonder too, does that open any room for um, you know small businesses? Right? Can you could you yeah. have a local IT firm that runs it for you, but then you still have the option should they go out of business or whatever else. You could you could take that infrastructure and bring it in house if you absolutely needed to. I can't I can't say who, but I was just talking to a commercial company that wants to go. They want to take something they've been developing for twenty years and they want to make it open source. And it's they're trying to avoid the whole throw it over the wall and now all of a sudden here's a huge open source code dump, right? Because uh, they want people to actually engage with them and improve it, it and maintain it. And so they're 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 at this stage right now. Like, how do we build a community around this in a way that's genuine, that gets them engaged, that isn't tied to these these platforms that people can just pull the rug out from underneath us? This is conversations I've been having with them. And I'll talk about more when they go public. But it's it's a real problem. And it's something I've been thinking about in the context of Jupiter Broadcasting recently, especially with uh, all the Patreon stuff going on. I'd really like to hear what the audience thinks is best, what works best for them out of these solutions we talked about. Right, because they're the other really important half of this whole puzzle. Totally. Right? That's the whole point of this is that we don't want middlemen. We can't have these these kinds of fluctuations that really hurt the communication and the relationship right. between mean, us and the audience. I want to build a business and I want to sit down here and I want to work and I want to make shows. And I don't want to be sitting here worrying about jumping funding platforms every two years. or, or That just is not sustainable. It's dangerous. It's risky. And uh, but it's in the way of you making making this awesome content. At the same time, I got to be where the audience is. Um, and right. I, I, I the, the, the none of these answer the whole network effect problem, other than perhaps people just understand this is the way things have to go. But boy, Wes, looking at this stuff, you know, peer tube and whatnot, I am very excited about the future. It's not quite there yet, but geez, if I'm not going to be watching it every single week to see where it gets right. And there are a lot of issues, as you as you just pointed out, right. It, there's not that level of polish, that level of integration, the level of mm. constantly everything wants you to use this account. It's tied in everywhere. If you have it, it's easy. Right. Or it's, apps on every device, et cetera, et cetera. Right. There are a lot of those blockers. And sometimes, for, especially running a business, those are enough where you're just like, I don't have time for yeah. this. It's not important enough. But a lot of those are ultimately, I think, surmountable problems. But doesn't, isn't, that, and isn't that why it also has to start with the technical elite, the, the, the open source crowd? Like it, it needs some early adopters to start – Shaving down these rough edges and making this shit usable and productizable. Yes. Like somebody I think has this to. This is too where we need to do better as a as a technological elite, doing better interface with with people in design. And we've talked about some of this on this show and other shows on the network. But bringing those people in, you know, an open source version of a of the whole product manager, design, UX, UI consultant, and so we can have this start with yes, it works for the technological elite, mm-hmm. but something that ultimately can be palatable. To, to everyone. What do you think, Bashful? Is the network effect too much to get over? You know, because if, if I build these things, it doesn't actually mean anybody will come. Well, that's always going to be the challenge. I mean, look at the same thing, like even with the chat program, if you break it down, like unless your people are there, you're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. So something, some, it's a chicken and egg. Something's got to be there first that's going to draw people over there, whether it's people, whether it's content, maybe it's exclusivity. I mean, it's a little hard to tell, right? I agree. And and Eric, the IT guy, you were pointing out that, yeah, this is all good. But then once you do all of this, now you're maintaining servers. You're like NextCloud. Like if I go set up NextCloud, I'm maintaining NextCloud instead of just using Dropbox. And that's that's a that's a split in my focus, isn't it? Right. And and I'm really torn on this particular issue uh, because I've spent the last year separating myself from the from the Apple uh, the Apple walled garden. Uh, I've given up iCloud Drive and moved to Nextcloud. That's that's all well and good for myself. But what about what about my spouse who is right. tied very very concretely to her to her iOS and to her macOS right. devices, much less the rest of my family who are very tech illiterate and 
and, and so do I just start walking over to them right. and hand them a Linux laptop right. with Nextcloud and all and these other services? And become like the IT guy for the whole family. Right. You, yeah. you may have to be the admin and you're not yeah. getting paid for this. Yeah, that's a great point. And the thing is, they don't have your moral convictions or your motivations, right? So while they care about their technology working well and they care about having power over it, you know, they just want their shit to work. Can I cast PeerTube to my TV in the yeah. living room? It's time to watch TV. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And uh, I, you're completely right. Is it you sort of take the burden on as the as the advocate, and that's why I feel like some places will be able to be early. Like Jupiter Broadcasting can be a, an early adopter of this before, say, PewDiePie or some other large YouTuber can, because they're sort of tied down by the popularity of their YouTube platform. Where we have a technical audience. We've always just you, you viewed YouTube as one of the many publishing platforms, right. not our only publishing platform. Like maybe Linus Tech Tips does. You know, they were there all in on YouTube. We're like, eh, we'll send our videos there. But really, we're all in on our RSS. It doesn't feeds. define us. Go yeah. subscribe to the RSS if you want the canonical versions of our show without getting censored. But we'll publish, we'll publish there because they got apps for days. They got every single platform. If you got shitty bandwidth situations like I do, YouTube's one of the few things that actually works. Like there's reasons to be there. Right. But, yeah, it's really hard to sell it unless people understand the technical reasons. So, Eric, I take your point completely because it would be essentially our job to make all that happen. And then you have the fact that, really, it's a huge overhead for all of the projects or other content creators. It's it's not an easy solution yet. Uh, do you have any follow-up thoughts, Eric, before we move on? Well, I mean... My family, I could pull it off with, but uh, what, what about my neighbors and what what about their family? Someone who doesn't have an open source enthusiast like a lot of us here at JB. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. Maybe they're unsavable. Just like the normals won't use encryption ever uh, unless it's done for them automatically. I don't know. I wonder if there's any room for like um, local government or like small community run services, uh, especially in some sort of mesh system. Right, you know, your your community association perhaps has a few of these services, maybe just for intra community communication, uh, but possibly providing more, you know, more actual services. Wouldn't that be something like a like a community mesh network? Yeah, I like that. That connects out to a greater internet at that point potentially to like retrieve other broader things. Yeah, and maybe hmm. maybe you pay a little bit. Maybe you've hired a local admin to help keep everything running. I don't know. I feel like I want to punt to the audience and ask them what they think about solutions to replace these information silos, these proprietary platforms. And what do you think about Linux users brunting this a little bit? Uh, you know, like, you've got to go to a special website. Maybe you've got to go create a Mastodon account. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not a big Mastodon fan. But you know what I'm saying? Like, just from, like a, from a theoretical standpoint, should we? Should we be the ones to brunt this to, to help the rest of the web or um, do should we just get to sit back and enjoy it just like everybody else? Like, why, why does that have to be our fucking job? Why has it got to be us that does this? Why is it our burden? They, you know, I'm not Batman. I'd answer you, but I'm busy watching YouTube over here. So. <laughs> Liar, you're busy building Gentoo right True. now. Actually, Mr. Wes, uh, why don't we do a little Gentoo check and how is it going over there? Got a thumbs up or a thumbs down right now? What are you thinking? Well, it's going pretty well. Right now, we're emerging XFS progs because I know how much you love XFS. I do. I couldn't, I couldn't build this thing on EXT4 with you around. I mean, I would quietly judge you. I, mean, I don't know if I would have vocalized yeah. it. I would have seen the look in your eyes. <laughs> so we're doing that. Uh, then we're going to get some bootloading going. And then later, we're going to see, will it come back online? All right. That's pretty good. So is that what I'm hearing in the background right now is XFS building? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's nice. I didn't realize that if you output the terminal to the sound card... We could actually Just hear it. Just it right there. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. That's nice, Wes. 
think I could fall asleep to this. West Building Software. You wake up, you feel really productive. It's, it's <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, speaking of feeling really productive, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. You go there to sign up for a free seven-day trial. It's a platform to learn more about Linux. But more importantly, it's a platform for you to feel secure about your knowledge and how to manage all of this stuff. You get a hands-on experience. It gives you the real confidence, self-paced, in-depth video courses on every Linux cloud and DevOps topic. And if you get stuck, you got a question, something doesn't make sense, they got real human beings that are happy to help you and answer your questions. They'll spin up cloud servers on demand. They'll match the distribution you've chosen for your courseware. You're busy. I understand that. And they got course schedulers for that. And they got learning paths to go in deep right on a specifics like um, series of content. Um, Time to get up to speed on OpenStack, let's say, just as an example. They got learning paths that will do that for you. You, you, got, you got a couple of days to get up to speed, they got that for you. They got certification training, if that's what your goal. And they have practice exams and quizzes to help you get ready for all of that. So when you go in to take the big test, you kind of feel like it's old hat. And that's invaluable. They also have nuggets where, again, with the holidays, family, I understand, you're busy. A little bit of nuggets here and there. You go in there, you get a little sparkly bit of wisdom, deep dive for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 45 minutes. I don't care. Depends on the topic. And then you walk away, you're like, damn, I just got some value. Damn, learn one single topic. Linuxacademy.com slash unplug. Sign up for a free seven-day trial. Community stacked full of Jupyter Broadcasting members. iOS and Android apps you can study on the go. Tools to listen to, like, lesson audio or read stuff offline, no internet connection required. And then... Public profiles to make sure you can show your employer, your contractor, or just yourself all of the great things you've accomplished. It's gotten so easy, too, to sell Linux Academy. Like, if, you ha- if you're trying to learn some new stuff on the job, sure. they have a ton of good materials you can send to your boss or just, like, walk them around. They've got a great site, and it's really useful, and it does have all those tools so that your boss or others can check in and make sure that people are actually learning. Yeah, and they have team training, too, which is nice as yeah, well if, you've got, if you do right. have a group of people. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. You go there, you get the free seven-day trial, and... Support the show. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. And a big thank you to Linux Academy. And as we record this here episode just two hours ago, they have announced new courseware. Uh, they're always adding new courseware. You're constantly getting value out of the subscription. But they've just added a whole bunch of new stuff on AWS, on uh, serverless applications, all of that stuff. So if you're hearing that stuff thrown around a lot, definitely go check out Linux Academy. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Unplugged program. So, Mr. Wes, as we sit here today, many, many people have asked us about Gentoo. So it's time for us to do a little Gentoo. And we've been covering Gentoo now for weeks on the show. Building up to it, some people thought it would never happen. But I'm, I'm happy to report, for the last two weeks now, going on three weeks, Mr. Wes Payne has been building a Gentoo install. And we've been checking in on that Gentoo install now. Up your shaft. So, Mr. Wes. That's me. Last week, we decided going on Sway. <laughs> this week, you've decided on XFS. Oh, also last week, you picked your kernel build options as well. Damn. This is going pretty All good. All kinds of fun, unique options here. So what is next on your horizon? So you did a stage three install. Let's recap. So you did a stage three install after we decided, well, what's the audience most likely to do? So you did a right. stage three, uh, which is all pretty good. So what's next after we get XFS built? After that, we're going to make sure that it actually reboots. That'll be, that's a that's a big <laughs> step right there. Really? Um, really? Well, you know, you never know. I've been running it from the install environment. So we've we've been a little privileged in that respect. 
I, I'm pretty confident it will. I think the kernel's pretty nice, which so should just come right have up, you, uh, mount all the file systems. Now, have you uh, have you done a Gen two install before, or is this your first? Is this your first here on the show? I, I, was there like it's one? It's not my first ever, but the last time was probably like six years ago, and I was also building it to run on a Wii, so it was a little bit different. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, I'm so sorry, what? It was a little bit of a different environment. Let me check a fact check in here. Uh, yeah, uh, I just got a note from my producers here. You can't install Linux on a Wii, so... Turns out you can. What? That's right. You put Gentoo on there? Yeah, and it worked super well. well <laughs> what did it, you the, do the with Gentoo? The Wii was, like, hooked up to the whole... Uh, at the time, I didn't have, like, a really good... Stop it. It was just before, like, the Raspberry Pi was super popular or anything like that. Uh, so it wasn't a great, like, streaming option, but I got no. Gentoo, then I installed MPlayer, and I could just, like, stream stuff right to it, play it all around my house. You... It was awesome. Does the, does the, does the Nintendo... Did it have internal storage you could write to? Like, you got access... Like, so uh, you could put in an SD card. And and you're using this to watch videos on your TV? Watch, Yeah, watch some videos, play a lot of audio, <laughs> uh, play live streams from the internet, all kinds of fun stuff. I just, I'm having a hard time understanding the use case where somebody goes to themselves, hey, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a Wii and I'm going to put Linux on this thing and then I'm going to use MPV to watch videos when you could just get a Roku or something. like. I just, this was before those days. I mean, right, Roku enough. was maybe pretty primitive, um, and I had an additional Wii sitting around, so fair it, enough, it was fair perfect. Enough, fair enough. So, but uh, I've never done like a full traditional PC-based Gen Two install. Mm, um, so it's mm. it's been actually a lot of a lot of fun. I got to say, I've been uh, walking through the handbook. Uh, it, it's really quite nice. I'm used to the a little more barren version of of like the Arch Wiki style, and I've also installed Arch oh, like yeah. a thousand times, so I'm pretty familiar. The Gen with Two it. Wiki does feel a little more verbose. Yeah, and, it, and it's not a bad thing. They've got they've got some. It, it's a little harder for the like. Hundred foot view yeah, overview, deep, like just quick, like I know I want Linux, this. What's yes. the keys that I really need? Because um, I don't need to like I'm not configuring this once and for all. I can emerge plenty of stuff later if I need to. I just want to know like what do I need? Yeah. But there's a lot of really well commented configuration files. There's obviously a lot hmm. of care has been put into this in certain terms of just getting you started. Okay, there's okay. a lot I think I still need to learn. I'm excited to have the system around to play with it. Uh, but so far, it's been a pretty good experience, hmm. especially considering that I'm doing this while also trying to do the show. Now, have you? Uh, there is a configuration file, like the, the central configuration file in a Gen, in a Gentoo install, which I don't remember if you get to at a stage three, where you go in there and you add your use flags. Oh yeah, have you done this already? Yes, I didn't configure them too much at this time. Though I was trying to keep it pretty simple. Yeah, that is kind of like the uh, the maybe that best thing about Gentoo. Use it as, yeah. after this thing is a little work more because, working because you can put a couple things in there that everything you build on your system follows those build rules. So maybe it's like certain optimizations for your processor or uh, your video card or, or, or multiple cores or whatever it could be, right? And then you add all that in there and then everything you build gets a slight advantage, just a little advantage. And the idea is, you know, you do it for all of the things on the system from the most basic tools all the way up to your graphical environment. And every time maybe you get like a two to five percent edge right you can actually target the architecture instruction set that you're actually running on yeah and you get all that flexibility where like maybe you don't like that they've configured this software with all the optional dependencies or maybe right. none. right right you right. can start to choose those things so, and feel like i really like this lean and mean or i like it really fat so that's the thing about uh linux distributions right is they're built for they're built for an intel 64-bit compatible system and that's sort of the overall large target that they go for but in Gen 2, you can say, well, yeah, but I have this specific version of Intel processor with these specific features, and I want you to build optimally for that or or, or close to it. 
And some people believe it makes a big difference overall in your performance because every little thing has that edge. Mm, I don't know if it's true or not. You know, in my experience, you almost don't notice it. But one of the things that brought me to Gen 2 early on, and the reason why I ended up putting it on a ton of servers, yep. even though it doesn't seem like a good server OS, is those those use flags and those build time options allowed me to install versions of Samba and Cups that could do stuff that none of the other distributions could do at the time. And so there is a place for that with Gen 2. So I'll be really curious to see. Maybe we'll talk about that more in like a future episode when you've gotten a little bit further down the road. Right. And there's more things to, you know, especially when you're getting your graphical environment applications, that's really where it matters. Yeah. There's the basic command line tools, like how fast can they be? I, I will say that, that to your point, though, like, you know, it may not be, it's not the server OS that you'd want to run just like, hey, I'm running a server. But but if you're a large organization or you have very specific needs or you're targeting specific hardware, it gives you this middle ground of control between yeah. I'm ro- rolling my own full distribution and using whatever they've provided, right? Yes. You have this flexibility yes. that for some people is like, is the right choice. And it does kind of feel like your OS when you're all done. Like, cause it's, you know, like it's been built. Oh yeah, that's right. It's been built with this in mind because I always wanted to build with this. Or, right. And if nice. you're doing it on the server, you can probably also have, you know, build farms and other things. You can produce one big tarball artifact that gets pushed to server. So sure. there's a lot of options. Yeah, there. sure. All right, Wes. Well, it's been good to follow. Oh, Bringing yeah, back yeah. the old memories. The days when uh, I actually bought uh, two Apple Xserves. Did you ever see the Apple Xserve? Yeah. You know about the Apple Xserve? Really? Actually. Oh my gosh. Nobody knows about the Apple Xserve, I swear. Because they don't, you know, they, they didn't sell a lot and they don't make them anymore. No. But the coolest. They got right out of that market. <laughs> so, in full disclosure, I came into, I came into a shop that had uh, two of these rigs. And uh, they were neat. It was right when Apple switched over to Intel. And one of the cool things that Gen 2 supported about the Apple Xserve was the uh, CPU meters right on the front. Did you did you see these? Did you ever actually see Apple Xserves in production? No, I've used them. I'd SSH to them. I didn't actually get to see them racked. Well, okay. So one of the great things about the Apple Xserves, and I wish more servers would do this today because go figure Apple did it, is they had uh, on the front LED indicators <laughs> – of uh, CPU load. So you could look just at your rack and see how hard look all of at your... that. Yeah. And then they had this disk called the Xserve RAID, which you could manage the RAID at a hardware level, and then they would just show up to the operating system, Linux included. And so I walk in, oh, they, and nice. they had they had two Xserves and an X-RAID. And the X-RAID also had a CPU meter on it, so you could see how hard your disks were working. That's awesome. And uh, I walked in there, and I saw one day, I saw these silver Apple servers in a rack. And I was like, what the... F- is What's this? happening? Yeah. This can't and, be right. And I see these little LED lights bouncing, and I'm like, what is going on? And of course, they were crashing like crazy because they were running um, something called Mac OS X. Never heard of it. But I put Linux on there, and I put Gentoo on there, and it supported the LED indicators. And uh, boy, did they start they stop having problems. And then I attached the X-RAID storage. It was pretty pretty neat, actually. I, I, I went in thinking, there's no way in hell I'm going to get Gentoo working on this custom-ass Apple hardware. And uh, sure enough... It was. It ran for three years in production. See, I wish I had done that because because mine was running OS X, and I, at the time I was writing C programs to run like physics simulations, and I had to like really? go carefully recompile them or get them <laughs> yeah. ready because I was developing yeah. on Linux, yeah, of yeah. course. Oh yeah, of course. That's awesome. Yeah, it was pretty great. It was pretty great because they were ready to toss these machines out because the Macs just kept failing, and the X servers were decently built too. Like um, one of the things that was it was kind of nice about them back in the day was that they they had these removable storage drives that were actually pretty convenient. Now this is pretty common stuff, but it was kind of nice back then. Yeah, and so to be able to put Gen two on them, Gen two, and then I th- I believe I had seven hundred users that were printing daily 
at least sometimes multiple, often, often multiple times a day through these two XServe printers or servers running Gentoo as Cups servers. Just so these two XServes running Gentoo would run Cups and Samba and they would provide all of the printing services to a 700 user bank. And every time you came in and you got a, like a balance statement or you made a deposit and they gave you a receipt or anything like that, it was all being generated through these Apple X serves running Gentoo for a bank. That's fascinating. And it, it, it was one of those things where they would, uh, they would have customers that were sitting there waiting for the printouts and the printouts weren't coming. Oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. You know, um, uh, maybe if you come back tomorrow, we can give you a printout. Like stuff you just can't do in banking. No. You don't do that in banking. No, you're a business. And that was when they ran Mac OS. And when we switched over to Gentoo, those problems went away. It was pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. And Sounds then eventually, like we're having a little Gentoo love affair right here. Eventually, Cups came to Mac OS, but it was that was much, 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 uh, much later. Anyways, uh, keep up the good work, Wes. I'm glad you're going with XFS. And that is a little Gentoo challenge update. I'm having a ton of fun. So uh, if anyone else has never installed Gentoo, you just want something fun to do, play around with Linux. I recommend it. Yeah, I know we got a couple of people that are doing it along at home. Let us know how it's going. And uh, let's see. Um, I think now. Now is the time for people to start betting on if Wes is going to have to reload at some point. <laughs> Something goes wrong. You, that is possible. <laughs> so you start taking your wages on that right now. Will Wes Payne have to reload his Gentoo installation? Stay tuned and find out. But in the meantime, we're going to leave you with that. We'll be back next week. we got lots of stuff in store. The year isn't over yet, and neither is your unplugged program. If you'd like to join us live next week, in fact... Come a little early next week because I think we're going to be recording some of our holiday episodes next Tuesday over at jblive.tv. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash counter to get this show and all of the shows you may want to catch live converted to your local time zone, time zone by robots that are likely paid in Litecoin. Let's go with that. Litecoin. Also, the subreddit, linuxunplugged.reddit.com. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you right back here, not tomorrow, not the next day, but next Tuesday. I did pretty good, didn't he? It was a good studio pop. He did great. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot. I was like, I wasn't even sure where he was at. He just he just was sleeping behind me the whole time. What a good dog. What a good dog. All right, let's see if we can get a title for this thing. Mumble Room, thank you guys. You were excellent as always. Tight and concise. I appreciate it. JVTitles.com. What do you think, Wes? What should we name the son of a bitch? Well, I got to look at the titles first. Got some good suggestions here. Saving the world one pit at a time. <laughs> nice. Pit one at a time. I do like that. Uh, that's pretty good. Let's see if we can uh, see if we can get. Let's see. Kill all system D platforming war zones. Look at you. So yeah, something about open source alternatives would be good. Um, open source options. 
options for open source. <laughs> My nose itches today. I was I was having some allergies. I've uh, had some of those too. It's been rough this year. I don't know. <sighs> I got a picture of the new dog on the Twitters if you want to see it. It's so cute. Mr. Makor. Makor. Levi, do you want to be my new best friend? He does. He does. He really does. Perfect. He wants to... That rejection was going to be pretty hard. Yeah. No, he wants to be your best friend badly. Uh, my nose itches, and I'm sick and tired of having allergies. All episode, I was basically rubbing, scratching my nose and trying not to sneeze. You did a pretty good job. I had one sneeze. I did have one sneeze. It was unavoidable. I couldn't I couldn't help it. What about long live the X-serve? There we go. Done. <laughs> yeah, right. That'd Titled. be good. That'd be good. It's like it, it's almost like it, it's like, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's like it, it buzzes. My nose is buzzing with itching right now. And like no matter how much you touch it, it's no, just, it's not going to, it itches more. It's not going to change. It itches more. It doesn't matter. It just constantly itches more and it's driving me crazy. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for about the sniffing and sneezing in the show, guys. Punishing content creators. That's not bad. Where was that? Somebody submitted punishing content creators. That's not bad. What do you think, Wes? What do you think? Uh, Nothing's perfect. Bashful, you had four excerpts? I didn't see nice, that. Nice, Bashful. Nice, yeah. Yeah, it was quite a while ago, but we had them around. Yeah. They mm-hmm. ran OS ten for a while, and then they got repurposed to Linux and became a cluster. So Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Which version of Linux do you remember? Uh, what were we running at the time? I thought it was like... Yellow Dog. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I don't think there were any other were options. They, were they Intel or were they actually PowerPC now that I think about it? PowerPC? Yeah, or at okay. least the ones I had were. Yeah, no, mine were. I don't even think they ever made them as uh, x86 now that I think about it. I think they were all PowerPC servers, which was what was so cool about them now that I recall. Yeah, at first thought when you asked me about the distro, I was going to say, oh, it must be Red Hat because I was thinking Yum, but. Yeah, no, Yellow Dog. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Got to get that yellow dog update manager from somewhere after all. Yep, that's right.